RTL Original Podcast. Is the second song on an album the best or at least the most important? Well, taking inspiration from the iconic Blur smash hit of the same name, join me, Stephen Stepslow, as I look into this loose theory and discover that an incredible amount of LPs have an absolute belter of a song too. We also speak to international artists and musicians and find out what they have to say on the matter, with some surprising results. Each week, we will be running the rule over a classic song too and inviting guests to agree or disagree. We've had a couple of weeks off and we'll go ahead and call those admin weeks if you please and we are now back and better than ever. Maybe. This week we are getting our teeth into um, some monster hits and I swear down here and now, if you still don't believe me on the song 2 theory, then I am really unsure what I'm going to do. Probably record a few dozen more episodes to tell you the truth, but I digress. In the first of a triple header of bona fide classics, I serve you up Piano Man by the one and only Billy Joel. If you're going to write a signature song, you're going to find it hard to beat Piano Man. The song is a fictionalized version of Billy's own experiences as a piano lounge singer for six months in 1972 to 1973 at the Executive Room Bar in the Wilshire District of Los Angeles. As he needed to work to pay the bills but couldn't use his well-known name, he worked at the bar as a piano player under the name Bill Martin. His full name, by the way, is William Martin Joel. Billy has said that all of the characters depicted in the song were based on real people. The track was a smash hit globally, but believe it or not, it wasn't until the success of his 1977 album The Stranger that the song began getting played more on radio and then became one of his signature songs and globally recognised. Today it remains popular and ranks as his number one song on iTunes and Spotify. Not bad for a track the creator thinks is pretty shoddy. Speaking to Metro magazine, Joel said, I have no idea why that song became so popular. It's like a karaoke favourite. The melody is not very good and it's very repetitious, while the lyrics are like limericks. I 
was shocked and embarrassed when it became a hit. But my songs are like my kids, and I look at the song and I think my kid did pretty well. For a while. And he's talking with David, who's still in the Navy, and probably will be for life. Next on our triple bill is An Innocent Man, released in 1983. An Innocent Man was the ninth, yes, ninth studio album released by Billy Joel. The whole An Innocent Man LP was produced in the style of 1950s and 60s popular music and was Joel's homage to the 60s era R&B that he grew up with, spliced together with his own romantic experiences as a teenager. They hear a voice in the hall outside and hope that it just passes by. Some people live with the fear of a touch and the anger of having been a fool. They will not listen to Joel said on the show 1000 UK number one hits by John Kuttner and Spencer Lee, usually I agonize over every note. But this time, the song came pouring out of me. I know you're thinking of somebody else Someone who hurt you, but I'm not above Making up for the love you've been denied At the time of making the record and its title track in particular, Joel was recently divorced from his first wife, Elizabeth Weber, and was single for the first time since he had become a household name and rock star. A byproduct of this success and newly found singledom was that he now had the opportunity to date supermodels such as Elle McPherson and Christy Brinkley. And because of these experiences, he said, I kind of felt like a teenager all over again. So far, so woe is me, Billy, right? But, according to Joelle, the various songs were not meant to be autobiographical and instead centre around various made-up characters. And so then, to the title track's importance and resonance. Well, for me, this track has a massive influence on my teenage years as, minor trigger warning, the song was played by my father over and over following my parents' separation when I was nine or ten years old. In fact, I had not faced up to hearing this song in almost two and a half decades, given its meaning to me. Some people find that it's easier to hate than to wait anymore. It was the third track from the chart-topping record and was an homage of sorts to Benny King and the Drifters. The lyrics are about a woman who's afraid to take a chance on love because she's had her heart broken in the past. She's projecting her fears onto Joel, an innocent man who tries to reassure her that he's not like the other guys. Joel was quoted in a 1997 interview describing the high notes he sang during the song. I had a suspicion that was going to be the last time I was going to be able to hit those notes, so why not go out in a blaze of glory? Man. 
that was the end of Billy's High Notes. The album cover artwork was taken on the front steps of 142 Mercer Street, just north of the intersection of Mercer and Prince Street in the Soho neighbourhood of Manhattan, New York City. I'll be honest, Uptown Girl is the record's best track, but the personal touch points, for me at least, mean that I cannot overlook an innocent man. The third and final Joel Stomper I have for you today is non-negotiable. It's a no-argument, move-along-please classic. This is a track that we all love to hate, hate to love, sing along to like maniacs, or pretend to sneer at. Please delete as applicable. But when this one comes on, you know it's in your head for days. It may even be in your head right now. Definitely now. Harry Truman, Doris Day, Red China, Johnny Ray, South Pacific, Walter Winchell, Joe DiMaggio, Joe McCarthy, Richard Nixon, Scooter Baker, Television, North Korea, South Korea, Marilyn Monroe. It is, of course, We Didn't Start the Fire, a track that came to Billy in his 40s after an encounter with a then 21-year-old friend of Sean Lennon during recording sessions for the album that would become Stormfront. These conversations resulted in a heated exchange over who had had it harder in their 20s. No sooner as the youngster had left, Joel began writing down bite-sized headlines from his youth, if only to prove his point. Eventually, he realised he was writing a song. The chain of news events and personalities came easily. Mostly, they just spilled out of my memory as fast as I could scribble them down, Joel told his biographer Fred Schruers in the 2000s. The song was released as a single on September 18, 1989, and later released as part of Joel's album Stormfront on October 17, 1989. A list song, its fast-paced lyrics include brief references to 118 significant political, cultural, scientific and sporting events between 1949, the year of Joel's birth, and 1989, in a mainly chronological order. When asked if he deliberately intended to chronicle the Cold War with his song, he responded, It was just my luck that the Soviet Union decided to close down shop soon after putting out the song, and that this time span had a symmetry to it. It was 40 years that he had lived through.
Joel was asked if he could do a follow-up about the next couple of years after the events that transpired in the original song. He commented back then, No, I wrote one song already, and I don't think it was really that good to begin with, melodically. We Didn't Start the Fire was popular among teachers for the condensed history lesson that hides in its lyrics. Other musicians have included historical events in their music too. Take a look at examples like Rasputin by Boney M, the Hamilton soundtrack by Lin-Manuel Miranda and Kings and Queens from Horrible Histories. And yet, for a song so indelibly time-stamped and frozen in the year of its completion, We Didn't Start the Fire has had a remarkably long afterlife. It's often used as an end-of-year joke by gammon-faced corporate execs, Jimmy Fallon used it to summarise Avengers Endgame, and a history-based podcast named After the Song sees hosts Katie Puckrick and Tom Fordyce devote an entire episode to each of the topics Joel mentions in the track. This then concludes our three-part Song 2 by Billy Joel, and if there are any more engaging arguments to be had, I don't know where they're going to be. You'll have to tune in week in, week out to find out if we can best this particular episode, or indeed go back and have a listen to our other Song 2 podcasts and see if we have done the job already. In researching this episode, we looked at onefinalserenade.com, songfacts.com, as that's the first one on any given search, genius.com, billboard.com, albumism.com, study.com, Rolling Stones archives, smoothradio.com, billyjoel.com, as we would be daft not to, wouldn't we, and the back of a cereal box. Weetabix, if you must know, as, well, we needed some time to decompress. Don't forget to hit subscribe to be sure you get your twice-weekly Song 2 fix, leave us a star rating, drop us a kind word in review, send an email to show at rtltoday.lu and be sure to let people know about this point of view. I've been Stephen Stepslow and this has been Song 2 for RTL Today Radio. Thanks for listening.